0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Wednesday, May 28th, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You know what I love? Ribbons on fans. In the stores. The fan stores. The ones where the fans have the ribbons on them and the ribbons are blowing and that shows us the fans are on. See? It's working. With what other product do we demand this degree of Confirmation but sure, I'll buy your bottled water, but first I'd like to dribble some out on the sponge, see what it does to it, or... um. You know, how can I trust these mouse traps? It does lack a mouse carcass right on the inside. Or let's not even be so abstract. How about when they sell a space heater, let's at least get a sweaty guy sitting right in front of it. I mean a fan, that is a dollar and fifty-three cents of plastic and an eighty-nine cent rotary engine. I mean that is some complex technology. I'm gonna have to get two ribbon confirmation before I could trust your fan to actually blow the air, if not cool it coming up on the show a talk about tv my spiel is about allowing the santa barbara shooter to drive our conversation even select the conversation but first racism in america how does it die donald sterling got me thinking about it and i brought in a pollster slash demographer to hash it out Today, Donald Sterling, the embattled owner of the LA Clippers, vowed that he would fight the NBA's efforts to compel him to sell the team. At issue, of course, are the racist opinions Sterling expressed on a recorded conversation and his let's say, less than exculpatory comments about Magic Johnson in an interview with Anderson Cooper. I've been thinking about Donald Sterling a lot. And one aspect of the entire ordeal that has been not mentioned that much is Sterling's advanced age. He's 81. And that might have affected his filter. Some, like Mrs. Sterling, have suggested that maybe Donald Sterling is suffering from the early stages of dementia. And yeah, sure, he might also be an unfiltered, early-onset Alzheimer's racist, of course, But being 81, being any age, does affect your attitudes towards big societal issues. And how often do we even hear the attitudes of an 81-year-old? Maybe you have a person in your life who's that age. If that 81-year-old were secretly taped and everyone had to comment about his comments, would you be comfortable with that? I mean, maybe you would, but... What I really wanted to talk about was not anything close to excusing Donald Sterling, but asking the question, where does racism come from and where does it go if it does go at all? Joining me now is Paul Taylor, the Executive Vice President of Special Projects at the Pew Research Center. Hello, Paul. Hello, how are you? I'm well. So racial attitudes by age, how pronounced, how much do they correlate to a person's age?
2: A lot. Uh, You start with the fact that we're in a very unusual era in American history where young and old don't look alike, they don't think alike, they don't vote alike. Let's start with not looking alike. Somebody who is Donald Sterling's age or his his age cohorts Mm -hmm. look like the America of the mid and early 20th century. 80% or more of 80-year-olds are white. Today, a majority of all children born in the United States is non-white. Young adults today, I think, have a completely different attitude towards race. We see that in in Pew Research Center and other polling attitudes, for example, towards, is it okay for whites and blacks to date? Is interracial marriage okay? Uh, Very, very huge generation gaps on all these things. What would the numbers
1: be for 80-year-olds or that age cohort? Well,
2: the numbers would be uh, much lower. I mean, so uh, are you okay? Is the growing interracial marriage, is it a good thing or a bad thing? For young adults, overwhelmingly, it's a good thing or it makes no difference. For older adults, very mixed on this. Uh, okay, for blacks and whites to date, younger adults, eighty, ninety percent, yes. Older adults, only half that, say yes. Mm-hmm. But what's also interesting is, frankly, even among older adults, uh, there has been a movement over the last 10, 20, 30 years towards greater acceptance and greater tolerance towards racial diversity. So the whole society is moving in that direction. This is clearly a case where the young are leading the old. And one reason the young are leading the old is the young are our uh, most diverse, our racially and ethnically diverse generation ever.
1: So I have this theory that There are a lot of ways that racism dies. Some of the stuff you talked about, uh, the lived experience, education. Sure, media images have a lot to do with it. But my maybe more cynical take is one big way that racism dies is that racists die. The racists just age out of the population via death. How real is that?
2: It is absolutely real. And actually... There's a line that uh, the conservative columnist George Will used for a similar issue, same-sex marriage. And he said uh, a year or so ago, as as opinion shifted shifted in a very short time, very dramatically on that, he said opposition to same-sex marriage is literally and figuratively dying off. And there's no question that generational churn is, is a part of this and a great marker of how quickly society is changing let's stay with races go back to the super bowl a few months ago and we all know the modern era super bowl has become among other things the super bowl of advertising mm-hmm. all the big product advertisers roll out their kind of new messages so we had you know three of the most iconic american brands uh... coke cheerios and chevy And they rolled out new ads at the Super Bowl, and they had American families. And listen, I'm I'm in my 60s. I've been looking at TV ad families all my whole my whole life. I know what they look like. And there's you know, husbands and wives are supposed to be the same race and the opposite you know uh, and the opposite sex these big brands sort of changed the rules, and Cheerios had an interracial couple, and Chevy had interracial couples and same-sex couples, and Coke had America the Beautiful being sung in a bunch of different languages by people of all different ethnicities and racial hues. These big product advertisers aren't in the business of making political statements, and they're certainly not in the business of making political enemies, not at $4 million for a a half-a-second TV spot. And they knew they were going to get some blowback on those ads. They did, and the Twitter sphere was alive with a lot of sort of racist comments. Why Why are we seeing this stuff? But they know what the numbers are, and they know what the attitudes are, and they know where the country's going.
1: So I've looked up the uh, statistic that we're talking about that question of interracial dating or interracial marriage, a pretty good proxy to racism, I'd say. And in 2010, Pew came out with a study that said 85% of millennials say they'd be fine with a marriage to someone from any of the groups asked, a marriage to an African-American, Hispanic-American, and so forth. Three quarters of the 30 to 49-year-olds would approve. 55% of the 50 to 64-year-olds would approve. And just 38% of those aged 60- 65. 65 and older, would it be safe to assume of those aged 80 and over, the number would be even lower?
2: Uh, I think that's right, and and, and, uh, let's acknowledge something. Whether it is racism at the core of those generational differences, or it is simply a resistance to change. If we go back to 1961, which is the year that Barack Obama's parents were married in Hawaii, our best guess is that something on the order of magnitude of one-tenth of one percent of all marriages that year were between a black person and a white person it was still illegal in sixteen states and frankly it was a gasp inducing taboo virtually everywhere else today if you look at all modern marriage, all marriages in the last year about fifteen or sixteen percent are across racial and ethnic lines that's a tremendous amount of change and, you know, at some level, you know, I mean, obviously no one approves of racism, no one condones racism, but people are a product of the eras they were brought up in, and 80-year-olds were brought up in an era where this was pretty unusual.
1: Do people often change their minds, or when you track a change in the mindset of a society, is it more often that, the, that people pretty much stick to their opinions, but this is the makeup of the society changes?
2: If you asked a lot of African-Americans 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, any chance a black man will be president in your lifetime, uh, The uh, my guess is, and I've done focus groups on this, the overwhelming majority would have said no way. In fact, blacks were much more skeptical than whites that this could ever happen. Uh, this did happen, and I do think it's because uh, minds did change and minds, minds were open. Uh, if you look at the trend over time, every generation is becoming more accepting. The older generation starting from a much lower level and they're still not nearly as accepting as their younger cohorts, but the movement is entirely in one direction and pretty dramatically. There are a few issues where we don't see a big gap, and and two that stand out are abortion. Abortion's been a very divisive issue in this country for the 40 years since Roe v. Wade. It remains a very divisive issue, and you don't see many differences between young and old on abortion. Similarly, gun control, uh, again, a divisive issue uh, and, and not a big generation gap. So you see these generational cycles in the current era, I think, very much driven by demographic and racial and ethnic change. And it has produced in most issues, but not all, uh, pretty large uh, gaps in attitudes and voting.
1: Paul Taylor is the executive vice president of special projects, which means he oversees demographic, social and generational research. Thank you, Mr. Taylor.
2: I think we covered it.
1: Joining me now is Emily Nussbaum, who writes about TV for The New Yorker. Hello, Emily. Hello. And Willa Paskin, who writes about TV for Slate. Hey, Willa. Hey. And we're going to talk about Mad Men, and we're also going to talk about Silicon Valley, which is the Mike Judge show on HBO starring Thomas Middleditch and T.J. Miller. What's the deal? I mean, is she, is she hot? Yeah. I mean, she's attractive, but almost every woman is attractive. It was her mind. She
2: wrote this Java method that was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. Elegant, tight. <laughs> what's up?
1: I wrote that code. You said you were in love with her mind. Fuck. You realize what's going on, right? It's not her you're sexually attracted to, it's my code.
2: Shut the f... That is the most disgusting fucking thing I've Just ever seen. face
1: it, Dinesh.
0: Basically, my feeling about Silicon Valley was I watched the first five episodes, got incredibly excited, thought it was really smart, loved the cast, was really interested in the subject matter, watched the last three episodes, got incredibly (laughs) angry, disappointed, and annoyed. I've never had an experience like this with a show. I mean, sometimes, you know, I'll watch something and and like it, and they get disappointed. But to me, it was a radical drop-off. And I know that one of the main actors died, and that is something that they clearly had to deal with in working with the show and is is very sad because he was an amazing actor.
3: One of the things that's interesting about Silicon Valley as with all shows, is how they kind of have to deal with sort of some certain like genre plot dilemmas that are put upon any show, which is like, basically, this was a season and they imagined this arc was, this kid's going to get this company. And at the end of it, he's, he's going to start this company. And at the end of it, he's going to get enough funding that we get season two. And so sort of the first episodes were kind of going along in this sort of slower way, almost. And then I felt like the last three, they were like, we really have to get him to TechCrunch and get him to get this money. And I almost wish that they had taken a lot more time because him sort of triumphing at the last minute was a very cliched turn.
0: In contrast, I actually felt like it was necessary to the show that he triumphed at TechCrunch at the end of the season.
3: You had no doubt it was going to happen.
0: I had no problem with that. But the last three episodes, and this is just so annoying to say because it just sounds kind of... But it's like the last three episodes had stupid sexist plots. They just did... And this was not true to me for the beginning. And I remember there was some criticism of the show for gender. And I was like, you know, something I know something about the tech world. It's largely male. I have no problem with shows that are about mostly male worlds. That to me is not sexist. The last three episodes had tedious sitcom plots about dopey girls or just for fear
3: of launching into a larger conversation, which maybe we can pick up after this. This thing about reading shows from this feminist perspective, which I, of course, end up doing all the time, I feel so conflicted about it because it's like, it's TV. And and obviously that doesn't mean it's not important, but it's like of all the things that need to be read through this lens all the time, maybe TV isn't the only thing. Like on, on Twitter on a given day, it's like how a TV show treated women is much more of concern to everybody that is on our little bubble of Twitter than actually how real humans treated women. You know, like it, the fictional project overtakes the actual real life stuff. I simply
0: disagree with this. I'm a TV critic. I'm going to talk about television. I think television is important and powerful. It should be taken seriously. What I disagree with are... Uh, like, pointless, rigid feminist responses to stuff. But I'm a feminist, and sometimes that's a lens that I bring in talking about TV. Actually, television is heaven for women right now. It has an (laughs) amazing amount of great female-driven shows and female creators. Like, when you look across the board, are there, like, interesting characters that aren't just spunky role models? Yes, there are. Are there a range of comedies that have women in central roles? Yeah, there are. Are there shows that have broad ensembles in which the woman is not just the Smurfette on the show? Absolutely. So there's been a lot of change. So when I watch Silicon Valley, I kind of sort of expect it to be baked in. Like my expectations are relatively high for these things. So when there's actually just a plot about a ditzy, you know, girl who can't code and how the guy feels like he's actually gay because he was only attracted to her because she tricked another guy into doing her coding, I feel disappointed.
1: Do you know if the uh, quality of the show or the production schedule of the show... Uh, the drop-off coincided with the death of that actor. Well, he
0: wasn't in the last three episodes. They so. have to have... I mean, I have, I have. I mean, despite the critical things I'm saying, I have obvious sympathy for, for the difficulty of a shocked group of people who have had a major loss like that, and then also have just the pragmatic problem of having to eliminate the plots he was in and write new plots into yes. them. But at least just from my outside perspective, watching these episodes, there just seemed to be a laziness in the thinking... of of how things were constructed and how the stories were acted out that was pretty disappointing. But I thought it was so good at the beginning, and I do think that the tech world is such a rich subject. And I love the lead guy. He's great. I love the portrayal of Google. Like, the whole thing was fun. And so I'm still looking forward to next season. It's just the difficulty with, you know, TV fanhood is that I got very attached very quickly, and so I became, you know, a hater
1: real fast. (laughs) Now let's go on to Mad Men and here's a scene of Peggy and Don in the office late at night connecting what the hell do I know about being a mom? I just turned 30, Don and now I'm one of those women lying
2: about our age I hate them
0: I worry about a lot of things
1: But I don't worry about you what do you think about Mad Men this mini-season? You know, my opinion was, I love Mad Men, and I love the themes. It just seemed like a lot less was happening in a meaningful way than in past years.
3: I, I can never tell if complaining about a show going on too long is really boring or totally apt. I-, I mean, I think that Mad Men probably, in an ideal world, should have ended at season five. They should have written it to that. They should yeah. have known that it was on, and it's gone on a little longer than it should. i. That said, I mean, I'm happy to watch it every week.
1: I just thought this season was a little bit... They they hit the themes. It wasn't as tied into the plot, and it was sort of wavering around. I guess like the decade itself was. <laughs> I mean, they, it was a great artistic achievement. I wasn't as tied into it as I have been in last seasons, and I did get the sense, and this might be projection, I did get the sense there's a little bit of spinning their wheels until the real big stuff happens uh, during the real official last season. Although that last episode was big. Oh.
0: I mean, I actually thought that the plot matched the themes that a lot of it was about this final moment of Don essentially learning to stop being as Joan had said to him, do you ever think of anybody but yourself and him having to be the sole hero and controlling the world. And a lot of it was about passing out responsibility to other people and dealing with the structures within the company. I actually just thought a lot of stuff happened including the the end of Don's marriage, the reconstruction of the entire company and especially Don coming back in this masochistic way, humbling himself, getting back to work and reconstituting the company not by sweeping in and taking over, but actually by diluting his power and distributing it and collaborating. That, to me, is a very meaningful plot arc. And all of the things that happen during the season seem to actually match up with that in meaningful ways. I mean, I've been especially interested in Peggy's development. I thought the season was really fascinating for Peggy. And the whole problem that she's been working all along, and then she ends up with the worst boss imaginable. Yeah. So none of the stuff she does... Matters And, and the, the walls that she kept facing were, were even when she had gotten this great campaign together, where eventually she just ends up in a meeting with guys that she's been working with for years and they say, you know, Don brings the authority and you bring the emotion. And she says, wait, no, <laughs> I bring the authority and Don brings the emotion and nobody can see that. I mean, I thought all of
3: that for me within the context of Mad Men is stuff I found I, exciting. I wrote about this on Slate, but I watched the show with some people who have not watched it since season one. And to catch them up took... 30 seconds. There are shows where you cannot catch someone up in 30 seconds. So, the thing about Mad Men is it is, it almost feels like it's this insular universe with its own language. And you've been, been paying a huge amount of attention. All of these, like tiny, minuscule, but vast in these people's lives, emotional changes, the nuances of their relationship loom huge like they do in real life. But for a TV show, that is very carefully calibrated it's very small for a television show so looking at it through their eyes it seemed so stagey and so mannered the way that that show is it doesn't sound or look like any other show and if you haven't drunk the Mad Men Kool-Aid you are Mm -hmm. actually like this is bad I felt from the beginning of the show that it was so exciting to see something so stylized
0: and mannered on television. I mean, that's part of what I like about the show is it doesn't have a kind of mumblecore realism. It never it always feels like everything in it is visually framed and people are talking to one another in this literally kind of very kind
3: fake of, yeah. sort of stiff way, especially for how we th- yeah. like Yeah, well it sound. fits in
1: with a uh, milieu where people will wear hat- hats and all the lapels are really sharp and yeah, I mean it's uh, in keeping with probably the manners of the times. No. <laughs> it's not in keeping with the manners of the
0: Well, house. I mean, it's keeping with the movies of the times. I'm sure that people didn't talk in that way at the time in that style in 1969. I don't
3: think the conversations people had... People are always people. We just filmed them ...had this kind
0: of, like, arch-stylized stage of Yeah, of course quality. they did.
1: Like, in the Civil War, they talked a lot their letters.
0: <laughs> Come on. I don't know. I'm very interested in what they're going to do at the end of the show because I have found it... Almost, and you, also they could the go anywhere.
3: Like it could be sort of a content, a sort of ha- not a ha- you know. A, I don't mean happy in some cheap way, but it could be some sort of mildly positive ending because it's really not about. Tri- you know, it's it's about this decade. It's about these humans. They're going to die. That's sad enough. So it's like it doesn't. It could really be really horrible for everyone who works there it could also they could just kind of peter out it's like it's, it's actually sort of reminds me in much uh, less extreme terms of like sort of when we were talking about the ending of Breaking Bad where it's like maybe the end is just Walt sitting at home in his living room you know no one knows who he is and he's just a regular guy again you could kind of have that feeling like Mad Men too. it could just end with like Don being regular Don. Stop being Don through the 90s.
0: I have many thoughts about the ending of Breaking Bad. But, um, the, yeah, I mean, endings are so peculiarly weighted for television shows, especially these ambitious television shows. It is a really fascinating problem for creators. And the whole question of, like, at this point we're sort of predicting this ending and saying, will it be a happy ending or a right. sad ending? Will it satisfy the viewer? Will it unsettle the viewer? Will it reject the viewer? It is. It, I, I mean, luckily Matt Weiner seems weirdly Immune. capable of, of of dealing with yeah. almost like obnoxiously so like he's just like yeah
1: I know what I'm screw gonna screw do you, people I'm <laughs> right. gonna do this thing Emily Nussbaum covers television writes about television just lives and breathes television for the New Yorker Willa Paskin does something very similar for Slate thank you guys thank you And now the spiel. And let me lay down a baseline for you to keep in mind as I am about to give you my opinion on a fraught subject. I am not pro-ignorance. I endorse knowing something over not knowing something. However, the amount of attention and import that we've given to the inner thoughts of the madman who shot and stabbed to death six young people and wounded 13 others in Santa Barbara has been positively uncurbed these last few days. We've met the girl he had a crush on when they were both 10, how could any news organization live with itself by putting this innocent girl's name in their papers? But there she was on the front page, pixelated in the case of the New York Daily News, unpixelated in the case of the New York Post. The Post included a bikini pic of the girl. The London Daily Mail had this line. But now, and they give the girl's name's father, and they ID him, has defended his daughter. And then they go to a quote of his. Has defended his daughter. You know, as if, oh, well, the mass murderer does raise some serious points. Look, that is, of course, the worst of the tabloids. Higher-minded media have sought out the sociological angles. Alternet has a headline, The True Alpha Male, The Santa Barbara Mass Shooting, then they give the shooter's name, and aggrieved grieved white male entitlement syndrome. And here's a lead in a Salon article. Quote, Welp, Another young white guy has decided his disillusionment with his life should become somebody else's problem. The article goes on, quote, Black men are not rolling onto college campuses and into movie theaters on a regular basis to shoot large numbers of people. Usually the young men who do that are white, male, heterosexual, and middle class. All right. I'll give you men. Mass shooting is almost entirely the work of men. But in America, where 70 something percent of the population is white, where definitionally most people are middle class, and where let's say 90 percent are heterosexual, it will follow that most of the crimes are committed by white heterosexual men. But it is not disproportionately so. The premise of, quote, another white guy, in addition to being a stupid lens to process this, is also factually an accurate. So Wikipedia has a list of rampage killers, sometimes called spree killers. There are white killers on the list and a lot of non-white killers on the list. The worst American school shooter of the last 80 years, the Virginia Tech shooter, he wasn't white. The deadliest workplace killer of the last couple decades, the first, how said is that, the first Fort Hood shooter. The DC snipers. You know... The point isn't to do a racial accounting of shooter ethnicity. It's to say that race or what commentators point to as white privilege is just another overly facile attempt at processing the meaning of the Santa Barbara shooter. Plus, there is the fact that his mother is Asian, and that led the New Republic to write an article about that, concluding with these words. Does it matter that he was half Asian? It means everything and it means nothing. I agree with the nothing part. This killer does not speak to the state of half Asian America or white America or whatever his particular circumstances were besides aggrieved, imbalanced and with access to guns. And now we get to the discussion of the killer's motivations. That does seem closer to legitimate, but I still think it's loaded with problems. This killer hated women. The list of spree killers are full of the disaffected and damaged who hated women. We are made to wonder if the modern version of this is especially relevant. If his connection to the pickup artist community, or rather the community that is militantly against the pickup artist community, if that matters... Less than his madness, I say. There's a lot of discomforting aspects to those so-called pickup artists. I don't know, though, if that means there's a continuum with the cartoonish guy known as mystery negging potential dates on a VH1 show on one end and a killer on the other end. I do think that what we see with spree killers is what we see with many tragedies. They're a Rorschach test that immediately confirms what we thought all along. Usually we object to the ugliness of the killer's motives, but sometimes if we sympathize with the motives, we might take efforts to say, my God, how bad must the bullying have gotten at Columbine High School to drive teenagers to do such a thing? Bullying, by the way, had almost nothing to do with Columbine. Let me just suggest that a deep examination of the University of Colorado's neuroscience department or Gabby Gifford's Office of Constituent Outreach or the anti-pickup artist message boards won't yield the truth. It won't make sense of the senseless. It might reveal pockets of hate. It might confirm an ugly subculture that is worthy of exploration and exposure. And this might be an opportunity to shame the worst of pickup artist message boards. That could be worthy, but it doesn't explain the tragedy. Finally... We only know about his motives because his actions were incredibly wrong. If we consider his opinion and parse his grievances, we give him a power he doesn't deserve. Yes, I want to find out if there's a bubbling up trend of hate killing on the way. I doubt that's the case. What I do believe we'll find is hurt and pain and illogic and self-aggrandizement and easy access to guns. I get it. I get the instinct of wanting to know and learn. But what's the issue where a spree killer's motives led us to a worthy contemplation of an issue? Well, maybe there's just one. The issue of guns, madness, and the intersection thereof. And that is it. Andrea Salenzi is the producer. And 4 a.m. in South Carolina. No, those are not the lyrics to a Hootie and the Blowfish song, but it is the actual time and place that she woke up today. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcast's The Dolphins Make Him Cry. Those are the lyrics to a Hootie and the Blowfish song. You can subscribe in iTunes and give us a listen on Stitcher. We have a daily email, tells you when the gist is up. Even, you can play the gist off the email. Go to slate.com slash gist email, facebook.com slash slate gist, or email us at thegist at slate.com. And if the sun comes up tomorrow, thanks for listening.